Let's take our Bibles this morning, shall we? John chapter 6 in our Bibles this morning. John chapter 6. I do want to, we're going to pray in just a few moments. I do want to ask you to be in prayer for Bethel Baptist Church and Pastor Walt Rose. Many of you know him and his wife Trudy. And we would know Trudy as she was a longtime member here before she married Pastor Rose. But uh, be in prayer for them. Uh, he wasn't feeling well last night and then woke up this morning. And uh, he was taken to the hospital, so he's in the hospital. I don't know anything else this time for him. But be in prayer for that church and be in prayer for the Rose family, if you would. You know, when we think about our country, and I love the United States of America, many of us in this room would be willing to give our lives for her and the freedoms that we enjoy, uh, that song does summarize quite well uh, why God has blessed the United States uh, for the years that it has. Uh, it certainly, America is not a perfect nation. We have a history, and not a long history, as many countries do, um, but uh, a history that's full of uh, failure and then also success and uh, wonderful victories, and it's obvious, if you've studied the American history at all, the history of America, that God has blessed the United States of America, but only, I believe, as a nation is under God. The Bible says that righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so, I, I want, as we think about this week, and the 4th of July still, and the fireworks, maybe you still can't see quite right or hear quite right. Maybe you're still itching mosquito bites from the, from the fireworks that you watched this week. But as we think of the United States of America and its birthday and the freedoms that we enjoy, do not forget, do not separate those freedoms and that liberty from the idea of a people that are under God, in submission to God. And... Um, and I want to look, as we look at our text in John chapter 6, we're going to see this idea of being under God, of following the Lord Jesus Christ, of submitting ourselves to him and his will is not a new idea. Uh, and we could go to the Old Testament. Uh, it was God's will that his people would submit themselves to him then. And here Jesus in John chapter 6 is standing before these people and they're they're, they're, they're coming to him, they're following him, they're seeking him, but for all the wrong reasons. Uh, they weren't seeking to submit themselves to him, but they were seeking that he would serve them. And uh, they were not under God. And, uh, and they actually leave him in this passage. They walk away from him because he's not going to serve them the way they think that he should. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I want you to ask yourself the question, because many of us would amen the song that was just sung, we need to be a nation that's under God, but I would also suggest to you that there is no such thing as a nation that is under God if there are not families within that nation that are under God. You follow what I'm saying here? There's no such thing as a nation that is under God, blessable by God, if there are not individual citizens of that nation that are under God. And every one of us in this room, many of us who are saved in this room here this morning, still struggle, don't we, with being under God. Do you? Do you ever struggle with that, submitting to him and his will for your life? Yes or no? 
Yeah, okay. So it's a daily decision that we have to choose that we're going to die to self and we're going to willfully submit ourselves to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. You fight that battle, I fight that battle. And uh, we, we ought to, we ought to. So what is, what is the purpose of John here? As we've been studying here, John, the Gospel of John, his, uh, his account of Christ's Gospel, what is his purpose? And we'll not take the time to turn there, but in John chapter 20, in verse number 30, it says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That's the purpose. Uh, John's writing these things that he had seen, that he'd witnessed, and he's, he, he, he pens them down as the Spirit of God gives him the words to write. And his purpose was so that people would hear of what Jesus had done, that we would know who Jesus was and is, and that we would, by faith, believe him believe in him and put our faith and trust and our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're in, you're in chapter 6. Look to the end, would you, before we get to, get to our text this morning. John chapter 6. It's a long chapter, isn't it? I don't know if you have it memorized or not, the whole chapter. John chapter 6. Look, look at me at verse number 66. And uh, this will just kind of be a sneak peek looking ahead to see what's going to be happening. In verse number 66, after... About this time, Jesus has been talking to them, he's been teaching them, and his, these so-called followers of Jesus turn away from him. And look what happens in verse 66. From that time, from the time of this teaching that we're going to be studying today, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. That happens today, doesn't it? Some of us have been tempted to go back to where we used to live and how we used to live and to walk no more with Christ. It's sad when it happens. You've probably seen it happen. You're tempted to do it. They did it. Verse 67, Then said Jesus unto the twelve, and can you just hear him, his voice, Will ye also go away? Are you going to leave me too? You remember... How we've studied in John, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He did miracles and signs, wonders. People saw him. They were amazed by him. They were impressed by him. His preaching was thought-provoking, nothing else. They heard him preach. They heard the word of God preach. They saw God in human flesh. And they walked away from him. And Jesus looks at the twelve. And you can imagine what this might be like. He looks at them. He says, are you going to leave me too? And look at how Peter responds in verse 68. We often give Peter a hard time. We emphasize his failures. This is awesome here. Verse 68. Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, curios is what he calls him, supreme authority. To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
What an amazing statement. You know, sometimes in our lives, we're tempted to walk away. We're tempted to give up. We're tempted to stop following Christ. But Peter summarizes it quite well for us. If you are going to walk away from him, where else are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Are you going to depend upon you? Are you going to depend upon the culture that which we live? Are you going to depend upon people, entertainment, stuff, things to satisfy the deep longing of your soul? Where else are you going to go? That's the question. Now, what was it that caused these disciples, so-called disciples, to leave the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, look back, chapter 6, the beginning, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. I'm going to read through it. Uh, I preached through it last week, so I'll not take time, much time with it. But let's look at the first, and, and you need to know what's happening here. In verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and the great multitude followed him. And the idea is there they were following him. It wasn't just this one time. They were continually following him. Why? It says there in the beginning, the middle of verse 2, because they saw his miracles. They were continually seeing his miracles, is the verbiage here, which he did on them that were diseased. So Jesus was going about. He's healing people. And he was continually doing it. This was not a uh, uh, healing there, here, and there, one this week, one next week. It was almost a daily event throughout the day. In other words, you didn't want to miss it. Uh, In verse 3 it says, And Jesus went up into a mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, one of his twelve, Whence or where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this, Jesus said, to prove Philip, for he, Jesus himself, knew what he would do. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Jesus knew what he was going to do. Philip didn't. Andrew didn't. None of the thousands of people that were there knew what Jesus was going to do, but Jesus knew what he was going to do. And that is a reassuring thought for you and for me here this morning. When you and I face situations where we don't know what to do, Jesus knows, he already knows what he is going to do. And we could look back through our lives and we can consider times and events in our lives where we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what was going to happen, but we look back and now we can see God knew what he was going to do. God had that all planned out. He was working. Look what God has done. And by the way, that isn't God knowing what he's going to do isn't just something of the past in our lives. Right now, today, God is working with our best interest in mind and his glory in mind for the future. He knows what he is going to do. And you know what? That gives me a lot of peace. Doesn't it give you a lot of peace? It's not easy going through the storms of life sometimes. It's not easy living life sometimes. But I know that I have a God, a Savior, who's working on my behalf, and he knows what he's going to do. He does everything well. He does everything right. He makes no mistakes. Look at verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 pennyworth of bread is not sufficient for them. And I told you that would be the equivalent of about $40,000 here today. That every one of them may even take a little. And I asked the question last week, you remember, uh, for the ladies in the kitchen, how many people could you feed for $40,000? It's a lot of people. 
But there were so many people here. Philip says, even if I had that kind of money, I couldn't feed all of these people well. We'd just give them a snack. (laughs) It's not going to be even that's not going to be enough. One of his disciples, Andrew, in verse 8, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here, small boy, which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, not much of a lunch. And Andrew almost laughs at the end of verse 9, and what, and what are they among so many? Now, this is laughable. We don't have enough. We don't have what we need to do what you want to do, Lord. Oftentimes, God puts us in that situation, by the way. Verse 10. And Jesus said, make the men sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Another account of the gospel tells us that the men were only 5,000, not counting the men or the women and children. So we estimate that, that would be easily 15,000, 20,000 people, maybe more. And Jesus took the loaves, just five, small, not big. He took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the disciples and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. And then those men, when they had seen the miracle, and we're talking about the 5,000 men here seated on the grass, you know. When those men had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. And referring to the Messiah, verse 15. And when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Now I have a question for you. Is Jesus going to rule and reign as king? Yes or no? Yes, he is. Why was Jesus opposed to these people making him their king? Does not Jesus want us to allow him to rule and reign in our lives as king? Why was he opposed to these men making him king? The disciples, by the way, desired, they longed that Jesus would be king. They longed for it, they hoped for it. Jesus had been preaching about the kingdom of God. He's going to rule as king of kings and lord of lords. And here you have 5,000 men not to mention the women and children, you have a small group of people, 15, 20,000 people, who are saying, let's make this man our king. Would he not have made a good king, do you think? A better king than Herod? Well, of course he would have. Why? Why is it that, they, that Jesus doesn't want them to make him king? We'll, we'll answer that later this morning. Look at verse 16. And when even was now come, his disciples went down into the sea. And entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. And so when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, it's about three miles, they see Jesus walking on the sea, drawing nigh into the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Let's stop there. Let's pray. We'll ask God's blessing on our study. I'll tell you, we're not going to spend a lot of time with them on the seat this morning. We're going to get to his message. 
And I want to tell you, it's not an easy message, and there are some complexities with it. You're going to have to be thinking, but this was a message that Jesus preached that people rejected and walked away from him. Okay, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us. I pray as your people. Father, we understand that without you, we can do nothing. And yet many of us live our lives on a daily basis like you don't exist, like it all depends upon us. Father, so many of us, we need, many of us in this room have tasted of the bread of life. We've eaten the bread of life. We've received Christ as our personal Savior, and yet we have not continued to believe upon him, trusting ourselves, and life is overwhelming us. We're, we're weak, we're heavy laden, we're burdened down, uh, some may be coming apart at the seams. Father, we help us to see this morning from your word what Christ was telling these people a message that they did not understand and did not receive. And they left him. Father, help us, I pray. May we not be like these people, but may we be more like Peter in this way, understanding full well that Jesus is our Lord and he is our Savior. He has the words of life, eternal life, and where else would we go? May our faith be strengthened, I pray, as a result of Christ's message in this passage. Bless your word, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in the passage that I just read here, starting with verse 15, and going only to, all the way down through verse 21, only that far, Jesus has left the multitude. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense from an evangelistic standpoint. Why would he leave the people? Why would he walk away from them? Shouldn't we be going to them? And we are. We're to go. We're to take the gospel. But there were times when the Lord Jesus Christ had to come apart to pray. I remember one pastor telling me, Seth, you need to come apart or you will come apart. Okay? You need to take time to get away. You need to get, take time to get alone with the Lord. You can't just dive in seven days a week laboring and working or, or something's going to give in your life. Maybe it'll be your physical health. Maybe it'll be your spiritual health. Something's going to give. And so there are other miracles that John, in this account, does not record. Uh, like Jesus walking on the water, he mentions it briefly. He does not mention Peter walking on the water at all. You're, you noticed as we read this passage, Matthew mentions that, and Mark records that. It also tells us in Matthew and Mark that Jesus constrained, he commanded his disciples to get into a ship. He tells them, get into the ship and go to the other side. I'm going to meet you there. Um, why? 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 And I can imagine that was the question in the minds of the disciples. Why? Isn't this what you wanted, Lord? You've been preaching the kingdom and you've been healing people and you've been showing yourself to be God and to be all-powerful and, and to be... Uh, this one that's been promised throughout the Old Testament, and now people are finally rallying to you. They're beginning to talk, Lord. They're wanting to crown you king. And now you're, you're, you're going to leave them? I mean, this is the time. This is, there's a movement afoot to make Jesus king. And Jesus has to command them, get in the boat 
and go to the other side. I'll meet you there. And I think there were two reasons why Jesus commanded his disciples to get into the, the boat and go to the other, other side. One is, and this is not the main part of the message, but one is because they were in danger. They were in danger. Now, you know the story, most of you do, how he sends them across the Sea of Galilee at night, and in the middle of the night, this storm whips up after they were about two-thirds of the way across, and they're terrified, and some of these, this, these apostles were, were sailors. They, they were used to the Sea of Galilee. They knew how to work a boat. That wasn't a problem, but the storm was so intense that they were literally terrified. Jesus knew the storm was going to come. He sent them into the storm anyway, and I dare say the storm was less dangerous to these men than had they stayed on the other side of the Sea of Galilee with this movement to crown Jesus as king. It was dangerous for them. Uh, There's another reason why he sent them to the other side, and that is that he wanted them to learn to trust him more. He wanted his disciples to know him as God, not just as a worker of miracles, not just as someone who could feed a lot of people and meet temporal needs. Now, that's the temporal, the, the immediate, earthly, Uh, that's where you and I live most of our lives. That's how we think normally. I'm hungry. I'm tired. I've got an ache. I've got a pain. It won't go away. That's kind of how we think. We think in the immediate. We think in the temporal. We think in the fleshly things of life. That's just natural. That's kind of how we work. That's kind of how we're wired. But Jesus wants them to beware of danger. Look, Look at verses 15 and 16 again. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force, these 5,000 men, to make him a king. He departed again into a mountain, himself alone. And when even was now come, his disciples went down into the sea. And of course, the other passages tell us that he had to command them to go. And so there's this powerful movement amongst the thousands of people to take Jesus by force and make him their king. And this was something the disciples longed for. And, but you think about this, this would have made Judas Iscariot the, the national treasurer That wouldn't have been that great of a thing. I can imagine, I don't have to imagine because we know what happened, the disciples arguing about who's going to sit on Jesus' right hand in the kingdom. Remember that? This is where they had thought. And even up to Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples are a bit confused. Do you remember this? We've talked about this before. They're confused. Why? Because he's not supposed to die. He's supposed to rule as king. And, and, and here's the movement. This is the chance. I think the disciples would have rejoiced at becoming rich, at ruling, at becoming popular. I think they were rejoicing in the popularity because at this moment, the feeding of the multitudes, Jesus is the most popular man there. They're all loving him. They're not really caring what he says, what he says or what he's saying. They're, they care more about what he's doing for them. They want to be powerful, but this wasn't God's plan, and so he breaks up the meeting, Jesus does, immediately. He knows a storm is ahead for his disciples in the Sea of Galilee, so why does he deliberately send them into danger? And I think quite the opposite is true. Jesus was not sending them into danger. He was rescuing them from being swept along by a fanatical crowd. He he was rescuing them from just going with the flow getting caught up in that excitement and that enthusiasm. 
How many of us like being a part of big things? I don't mean you like the crowds, but you like, you like being a part. You like being on the winning team. How many of you like that? Most of us do, don't we? It's just natural. You know, if you're, you know, if you're Michigan football fan, you're not on the winning team much, are you, when it comes to football? At least for big games, you know. Ted Green, no comments about Ohio State are necessary, really. But we, we tend to, we like to be a part of the winning. We like to be a part of something big. And, and we in our society, and this is not new to our society, we tend to look at things that are big and bright lights, beautiful uniforms, full stands, full auditoriums, and I'm not preaching for empty auditoriums here, as success. Success. If you can just have people excited, passionate, and that's success, isn't it? But not in Jesus' estimation. It's not. That's not the goal. Jesus was rescuing these men, his own apostles, from the pride that would have come from having been just a part of something so amazing, so miraculous. They had experienced great joy, I think, in being a part of this thrilling miracle. I mean, they're the ones who, Philip had been the one who was asked by Jesus, where are we going to get the food for all these people? He says, well, $40,000 would only give them a snack. (laughs) Andrew, I got a small boy here with a lunch. But what what is this among so many people? And they had gone from that, we don't know where we're going to feed all these people, or how we're going to feed all these people, or we we don't have the means to do what you want to do, Lord, to, wow, Christ fed all of these people. It was amazing. It would have been thrilling. And now Jesus tells them, get in the boat, go to the other side, and now his disciples are facing this storm. Have you ever been there? Things are going really well. They almost, it doesn't seem like it could go any better. And all of a sudden, the winds change. And now you're facing great opposition and great, a great storm. And Jesus wants his, his apostles to learn to trust him more. I won't take time to turn there, but in Mark chapter 6 and verse 52, Jesus says that the apostles' hearts, the disciples' hearts were... were uh, were hardened, and so they, they believed not the miracle of the loaves. What does it mean? They didn't believe the miracle of the loaves. They helped pass it out. He broke it, put it in their hands, and they handed it out. Of course they believed the miracle of the loaves. No, they missed the point. They missed the point. They were amazed at what Jesus could do, but they were missing the point. And sometimes that happens to us. We rejoice in what Christ does, but we miss him. We miss him. You see, God desires for us to love him. God desires for us to long for him. God desires for us to glorify him and to honor him and to praise him, not just in what he does. You know, the feeding of the multitude was the lesson. The storm now is the test. Maybe you're caught in a storm today, and sometimes we find ourselves in storms because of our own disobedience, like Jonah. And other times we find ourselves in the middle of a storm because of our obedience, like these, like these disciples. Look at verse 17. It says, And they entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum, 
And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. When they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea, drawing nigh into the ship, and they were afraid. I want to compliment the, the disciples here for just a moment. They obeyed him. They got in the boat. When I don't think they felt like it at all, when I think they actually disagreed with him, they got in the boat. They started going across the sea. The wind is now contrary, which means it was opposing them. The other accounts say that they were terrified. They are terrified. And yet they did not I'm not a mariner, okay? But in some of the things that I've read about this passage, some have mentioned that it would not have been hard for these men to turn the boat around and let the wind blow them back across the sea to go with the wind. It would have been challenging to turn the boat around, but not impossible for the men of this caliber, skilled as they would have been on the Sea of Galilee. It would have been very doable. But they're persisting They're loyal. They're trying to obey the voice of their Lord in going to the other side. You know, to some degree, everyone in this room who's a born-again child of God is on a voyage. And God has said to us, I want you to go to the other side. I'm going to meet you there. But life, the journey, the the sail, the, the crossing's not going to be easy. You're going to face some winds that are contrary to you. And I want you to know, as an individual, every single one of us, men and women, and there are some young people in this room, some teenagers in this room, the, the winds of life, are, uh, the waves of life are boisterous. The winds of life are contrary to every child of God who is trying to follow the Lord Jesus Christ's command. Our own flesh opposes us on a daily basis. It is a war. It is a battle. And I want you to know you're, you and I are not the first ones to fight it. And you and I are not fighting it alone. You can look around this room, and every single one of us in this room are facing temptations. Every one of us in this room are facing opposition. Our own flesh is opposing us. Uh, pressures of the world. First John 2 talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, it is of the world. And you and I are facing those things. And while they're here continually trying to go into the wind to the other side, just trying to obey their master's command to them, now all of a sudden they look, and in the middle of the storm they see what appears to be a ghost. Now, of course, you don't believe in ghosts, and neither do I, so we're not scared of them. But if we had seen this, we would have been terrified. Something they hadn't seen before. A man walking on the water in the storm, closing on them. They're not making progress. He is. I wonder if they rode a little harder for a little while. They had to be tired and fatigued, don't you think? And, and, and who, who was it? It was Jesus walking on the water, and the Bible says he comes to them. They, he says, it is I, be not afraid, climbs in the boat, and immediately John recounts that they're in Capernaum. And there's coming a day where there's going to be an immediately. There's, going, there's coming a day where the, the contrary winds are going to cease. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to bring us safely to shore. But your responsibility and mine is to stay the course. Stay the course. Don't give in. 
Never in my life am I more aware of the contrary winds that you are facing than I am now. It concerns me. But our Lord and Savior is sufficient to see us to the other side. Do not give in. Do not give in. He wanted his disciples to trust him more. Jesus comes to these obedient, albeit helpless disciples. He's walking on the water, and he delivered them. Hebrews 13 tells us, let your conversation be without covetousness. Let the way you live your life be without coveting what you don't have, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. And that's what Jesus wanted these men to know. The Lord was their helper And I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Look at verse number 20. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Be not afraid. Are you afraid today? Do you find yourself afraid on a regular basis? Some of the most manly men are afraid sometimes. You know that. Life brings different squalls and different storms, and some of the bravest, most courageous men are sometimes afraid. Jesus looked at them and he says, be not afraid. Isaiah 41 in verse 10 says, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And so if you're currently in a storm, if you're in life, there are storms. Someday Christ is coming for us and he's going to bring us safely to that port. Verse 21 it says, Then they willingly received him into the ship and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Look at verse 22 and I want you to see the occasion. What's the occasion here? We've seen him, and it's a complicated passage, but with some effort and the help of the Holy Spirit we can understand this. Two days are referred to here. We have the day of the feeding of the multitude, the 5,000 men, And then we have the day after when Jesus is teaching. Um, On on the first day, he feeds the multitudes. He commands the disciples to get into the boat and to go to the other side. And then Jesus departs into a mountain to be alone. Look at verse 22. The day following, you see it there, the people which stood on the other side of the sea where Jesus had been saw that there was none other boat there save that one whereinto his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples. They see all of this into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. So on the day Jesus fed the multitudes, the mass of people saw the disciples get into the boat and start across the Sea of Galilee. The people also saw that Jesus does not enter into the boat with his disciples. The day after, the very next day, The people gathered again. Remember, they were continually following Jesus. They gathered together again. What's Jesus going to do today? And they find that Jesus and his disciples were still not there. The previous evening, they had watched the disciples get into the boat. They had watched the disciples depart. Um, But Jesus is not there. Jesus is not there. Look at verse 23, verse 23 and 24, Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias nigh unto the place, the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. So in the meantime, some other boats come to shore, this 
that the day after he feeds the multitudes, these other boats come to shore and some of the people get on board and they go across the sea in the direction that the disciples had gone. And look at verse 25. It says, When they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, or teacher, when camest thou hither? So the people, they arrive in a multitude of boats. Not all of the people would have come, obviously, but a number of them would have come. And they only find in Capernaum one boat in which the disciples had taken, but they also find Jesus there. Now, wait a minute. They had watched him the night before. The disciples got in the boat. Jesus didn't get in the boat. The disciples had launched to go across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had not. But when they get to Capernaum, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, what do they find? One boat, all the disciples, and Jesus. And they ask a question. How did you get here? Really practical, don't you think? How did you get here? We saw your disciples get in the boat. It's a natural question. How did you get across the sea? And I'm just giving you the setting of the story. And notice how Jesus teaches those who are seeking him. Look at verse 26. And Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. So there are all these people seeking Jesus. Now, is that a good thing, yes or no? People seeking Jesus, yes or no? Yes. But you know that seeking Jesus, it's possible to seek him with the wrong motives? Or or, or even in a way, to seek something. And they think they're seeking Jesus, but actually they're missing him because they're seeking for something else. What were they seeking, according to Jesus? They were seeking lunch. That's what they were seeking. He fed us fish and barley cakes last night. Maybe it'll be leg of lamb today. They were seeking Jesus for what they could get. For temporal, material, fleshly satisfaction. That's where they were seeking him. My question to you and me is, why do you seek Jesus? Do you seek him at all? And if you do, why? What is it that you long for with him? What is it that you're after? Who is it that you're worshiping? Do you only seek him for what he will do? What other miracle? Now, the truth is, we need him, don't we? We need him to work. We need him to provide. We need him to deliver. We need him. He is the Savior of the world. But these people are seeking him only because of what they are going to get. Verse 27, he says, Labor not, work not for the meat which perisheth. Don't live for the temporal, but for that that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then? (laughs) What sign? What miracle? Do something that we may see and believe thee. What what dost thou work? What are you going to do next? That's what they're saying. Verse 31, our fathers, and now they even make a proposal in verse 31. Our fathers, uh, speaking of many years ago, did eat manna in the desert. 
As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Maybe you could do that. They're still thinking about their stomachs. Verse 32, then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, give evermore, give us this bread. You mean you can feed us with something so good, so amazing, that we'll never have to eat again? I'll never have to buy another meal for my family again. You know, going to McDonald's gets more and more expensive, doesn't it? You got four kids, and you go, they want to go to McDonald's. I mean, Sorrento's is not that much more expensive than McDonald's, it would seem, sometimes, you know? Uh, I'm not getting paid by Sorrento's, in case you're wondering, anything like that. But it's not cheap. And, you know, there, some of these men are, are thinking, you know what? You have bread so amazing. You can feed me with something so impressive that I'll never have to eat again. Let's have it! All they care about is the temporal. Now, think about this. They are looking Jesus in the eyes. They're looking at God in human flesh. And all they can see or feel is that they're hungry. Physical. Now, Jesus, in back in verse 26, he doesn't answer their question, does he? They had asked Jesus, when did you come to Capernaum? He told them why they had come. They said, when did you get here? And he, he doesn't even answer that. He just says, this is why you're here. Let's talk about you, is what Jesus does. In verse 26, look again there. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, not because ye saw the sign, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. He ignores their curiosity as to when he arrived in Capernaum, and he goes straight to the point, and he says in verse 26, You're not seeking me because you saw sign, the sign. You're not seeking me because you're interested in me. You're not interested in salvation. You're seeking me because you're hungry and you just want lunch. Now, Jesus said, and you notice this in verse 26, Jesus said that they weren't seeking him because they hadn't seen the sign. But hadn't they seen the sign? I mean, they, they were there, right, for the feeding of the 5,000. They were there for the feeding of the multitudes. Didn't they see the sign? Well, no. They hadn't seen the sign. Uh, That's exactly what they hadn't done. They had not seen, I should say it this way, they had seen the power of God, but they had not given God the glory. They had eaten the meal which Christ had provided, but they hadn't given him the glory as God. They saw the power demonstrated as a means to get what they wanted, a king who could feed them and satisfy their earthly hungers. But but they had seen the demonstration, uh, they had seen the demonstration of Jesus' power, but they failed to see the significance of Jesus as the Christ, the Savior of the world. They failed to comprehend what he could ultimately do for them. They were so consumed with the temporal. They were so consumed with the the material, and they completely ignored their own spiritual poverty. The woman at the well did this, by the way, too. You remember Jesus said, I have, I, have, I have living water I can give to you that you'll never thirst again. And what did she say? 
Well, let's have it then. I don't want to have to come out to this old dusty well all the way out from the town. Give me the water. I'll never have to drink again. I'll never thirst again. What is she thinking? She's thinking about the material. She's thinking about the temporal. You and I. What is it that dominates our prayer closet? Or is it our health? Lord, could you help my egg, my, my egg, my leg to stop aching? What dominates our prayer cloth? What is it that we at, what what is it that we value the most? Lord, please provide my children with a well a good paying job. It's not wrong to pray for that. We are very very earthly minded. I think the vast majority of people were interested in Jesus for the wrong reason. They were following Jesus for the temporal things of this earth. Earthly satisfaction. Give us some food to eat. Hey, heal this person. And Jesus Christ, while he did heal people, that people would believe that they would know who he was, that he was God. Ultimately, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to save a person's soul, their eternal soul, not just to give them a meal. Not just, you see, even the healings were temporal. Do you see that? I mean, Lazarus, Jesus raised him from the dead. And what happened to Lazarus eventually? He died. He died twice. Temporal. You see, their interest in making Jesus a king was not because they were understanding his teaching concerning the kingdom of God, but because they did eat of the loaves and were filled. That's what he says at the end of verse 27. Look at verse 27. He says, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Jesus here firmly rebuked the people for coming to him for the meeting of their of only their temporal needs. Jesus rebukes them for this. He rebukes them for this. Jesus told them that, that, that they all needed everlasting life and that he would give it to them by the authority of God the Father. And they had heard what Jesus had said in verse 27, but they missed the point. They latched onto his word when he said, labor not. And they started, they're thinking about labor. I, I know what work is. Look at verse 28. Then said they unto him, what shall we do? What shall we do? What should we work? What, how should we labor that we might work the works of God? You know, these people would have understood the works of God to be the keeping of the law, the Jewish law in those days. They would have understood the works of God to be that which was moral and that which was upright, that which was righteous. And notice that they didn't ask what was right. What should we do? They don't ask that. They ask how they could do what was right. What shall we do, they say in verse 28, that we might work the works of God? You know that people are still asking that question today? What am I supposed to do so I can please God? What, what, what do I have to do? Okay, Rabbi, tell me, what do I have to do so that I will know that I can live my life in such a way that God will put his stamp of approval on my life? And notice the progression here. First, they're overly concerned with their, their stomachs. They're hungry. And then they begin to ask Jesus, as a rabbi, a teacher, to teach them, okay, uh, I know you want to talk about spiritual things and 
uh, scriptural things, Rabbi, so we'll bet we can wait a little longer on lunch. But if you just tell us, so tell us how we're supposed to please God. Go ahead, give us a speech. Preach to us a sermon about that. And make, if you could make it brief and maybe in, in nice, simple points so we can just check off our boxes. You know, I got to say, as I hear this, I'm, I'm, part of me is thinking, this is kind of how I think. This is kind of how I tend to think. Tell me, how, how can I please God? And look at Jesus, notice his wonderful appeal in verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, in a sense, this, your salvation, your eternal life is the work of God. That's what he says. That ye believe on him whom he hath sent. You see, the salvation of your soul is the work of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm not minimizing the necessity for a person to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to talk about that. But if God had not loved us and given his son for us, there would be no salvation. And it wouldn't matter how much we believed or longed for it or wanted it, our salvation would be impossible. There would be no way to be saved. And Jesus looks at them and he says, the work, uh, uh, this is the work of God. In John chapter 16 and verse 7, he goes on and he says this, nevertheless... I, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you, speaking to his disciples, that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he, the Comforter, is come, that paraclete, the Holy Spirit, he will reprove, he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you believe that salvation is found in Christ alone? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day? When it comes to the unsaved of the world, God desires that they would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be saved. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And, and he desires it so much that he is actively, God is actively working to bring mankind to an understanding and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ so that all may be saved. They asked Jesus what they could do to be moral and holy, and the answer was himself. Give us a list. Give us some laws. Expound on the laws. And if we keep those things, if we emphasize the right things in our lives, then we will please God. And Jesus' answer to them is, it's not your work, it's the work of God. And you need me, is what he was telling them. You need me to save your soul. And they're not getting it at all. It's going right past them. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Look at their unbelieving question. You see their human nature in verse 30. Look there at verse 30. They, they said this, Therefore, they said therefore unto him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? And uh, what dost thou work? What are you going to do next? In other words, they say, show me and I'll believe. Give me a sign. And I might ask the question, hadn't they just seen a sign the night before? Feeding 5,000 men with just a little boy's lunch and little fish, remember? 
What else do you have to see? All these people, 10, 15, 20,000, however many of them, hadn't they just seen the sign the evening before? And the answer is no, they hadn't. They hadn't seen the sign. They had gotten fed. They had, they had eaten fish. And they had eaten barley cakes. They were full of food. They wanted to make him king, yes, but they had missed the sign. They had missed the point. And the point was that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah, the one spoken of throughout the Word of God, throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is all-powerful, that Jesus, as John the Baptist had proclaimed, is the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And these folks, when they heard this message and they saw this sign or they heard this sign, these folks were like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, that's nice. You're the Lamb of God. You're the Savior of the world. That's nice. Everlasting life. Who doesn't want that? But what's for lunch? I understand them, don't you? The physical and the temporal and the material seem like everything spiritual kingdom of God Jesus Christ ruling and reigning for all of eternity this great drama if I can call it that the rebellion of Satan against the authority of God the deception of Satan in the world leading mankind in rebellion against the holy God Jesus loving sinful man and sending his own son to redeem us to buy us back because he is a loving, merciful, compassionate, merciful God, that we might be holy and live for him and please him and rule and reign with him for all of eternity is lost to us because we are so focused sometimes on the material and the temporal things that mean everything to us. And really, they should mean so very, very little. These people were so completely consumed with the temporal. Have you heard the saying that seeing is believing? Have you ever said, I wouldn't have believed it had I, had, had I not seen it? I saw it. I wouldn't have believed it had I, had I not seen it. I've said that before. Well, seeing is not believing. Seeing is seeing. That's what seeing is. Seeing is seeing. Believing is being sure of something without seeing. And I look back when I was a five-year-old boy, and my parents had taught me that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had loved me so much and given his life for me on the cross. Even though I was a sinner, if I believed upon him and put my faith and trust in him, he would forgive me my sins and save my soul from all of eternity. As a five-year-old boy, while I had not seen it with my own eyes, the death of Christ, his burial and resurrection, I believed it. And the longer I live and the more that I follow this book, the more clear it is to me. It is the truth. It is the gospel. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And he loves me. And he has given himself for me. And I ought to trust him. And I ought to live for him. And I ought to learn to know him better. And I ought to love him with all of my heart. You see, they had already seen a miracle, but they had missed the sign. They had seen the miracle. Feeding of the 5,000, but they had missed the sign. You know what? At this point, if I were texting you, I'd put the emoji, mind-blowing. Or maybe the ones like, you know, he's flushed face, his eyes are like, you know, I don't know, I can't do all the emojis. If you don't know what an emoji is, it's a yellow head, eyeballs, nose, no ears, no hair. If you're not into texting, you don't know what it is. But you know, 
what was the problem? What was the problem? What was the problem? They saw the sign, but they missed the whole point. These people are still thinking about yesterday in the feeding. Look at verse 31. They say, our fathers did eat man in the desert. They're still talking about food. What's the problem here? As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus, you're you're a rabbi, you're a teacher, you're a prophet from God. You can do miracles. Hey, if if you're coming up empty here and what you might do today, we got a proposition for you. Just just off the top of our head, it has to do with food. We're thinking about Moses in the Old Testament, and these folks are basically telling Jesus that Moses had outdone him. We know you took five barley cakes and two little fish from that small boy just last night on the other side of Galilee, and you fed all of us. I I get that. But Moses, for 40 years, fed manna from heaven. Just saying, you, you fed 20 grand, 20,000 people with only that little small lunch. But Moses, and you see their inference here? They're kind of almost challenging him. What you did yesterday was really great, and and we even were thinking about making you king, but that, (laughs) you know, folks, that was only one meal. It's almost like they're baiting him. Do you get that idea, get that sense? Moses fed our people for 40 years. Can you do anything as big as that? And about that time, I can just imagine some guy in the crowd saying, Honey, did you bring all those baskets I told you to bring? The other one was in the garage. I told you to bring. They had 12 baskets left over yesterday. Who knows how much we're going to have left over today. They're just consumed with this. This is all they can think about, just the temporal. Folks, he is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is going to rule as king. And he is concerned about the temporal things in our lives. That is true. But some of us are so consumed with our emotions. We're so consumed with our fears. We're so consumed with our hungers. We're so consumed with our, our lust, our, covet, our coveting hearts. And we're not hungering for him. We're not feeding on him. And some of us are so dissatisfied with life. And, and, and we're almost tempted to say, he's not enough. The problem is not with him. The problem is that we're feeding on the wrong things. We're living life like this is all there is. We're living life like if I can't have that, life's not worth living. If it doesn't work out the way I think it ought to work out, well, it's such a terrible way to live. So miserable. You don't have to be miserable. You know him. You know him. You've tasted him. He is the bread of life. He is the savior of your soul. He is the lover of your soul. He's enough. He's enough. If you were to lose your home, would he be enough? If you were to lose your job, would he be enough? If the ministry doesn't work out the way you thought, think it should, will he be enough? Or will you find yourself despondent and discouraged and depressed, full of hate and animosity, pointing fingers at everybody under the sun that you can think about, not wanting to openly blame God, but knowing in your heart that's kind of where the odd is? Because he could have stopped this. 
he didn't. They missed the sign. They missed their Messiah while he stood directly in front of them. They missed their Savior. They they were hearing the sound of his voice, but they were missing his message. And notice how Jesus responds to them in verse 32. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. You're giving the glory to Moses. Don't give it to Moses. But my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Verse 33. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. He's speaking of himself. He's literally telling them, I am your Savior and I am here. Verse 34, he goes on, Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And and my question is, did they understand? No. Reminds me of the Samaritan woman at the well who did end up getting it. In John chapter 4, we studied her, and these people stand here and they say, Listen, you 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 can provide a meal that I'll never hunger again. I want that. We don't need the baskets, honey. He's going to feed us one time for all. And they're still thinking about this. Maybe maybe God will help me win the lottery. He knows what the numbers are. You're thinking about this. You see, that's not his biggest concern, whether you and I are rich, whether our house is perfect, whether our vehicles are brand new, whether retirement is, and all the health is perfect throughout retirement. You know, and there, there no, that's not it, folks. These Jewish people were so materialistically minded. Moses fed people from 40 years, and you're saying that God is going to feed us with bread from heaven through you. Well, let's have it, is what they're saying. They're so consumed with the temporal. Look at verse 35. Notice this revelation. And Jesus said unto them, and this is huge, I am the bread of life. I am. You know, that's one of the names of God, one of the names of Jehovah. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. This is what Jesus says. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Let me read that again to you. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He that, and the verbiage is this, the grammar is this, he that is coming to me shall never hunger. And he that is believing on me shall never thirst. Some of us read this, and we have the idea of, well, I came to the Lord, and you know what? He satisfied my hunger then, but you know what, Pastor Ferguson? Frankly, I'm as hungry as can be, and most of us are right about now. I know that. But, Pastor, I'm, I'm as hungry as I can be, and you are. You are you're desiring this boat and that motorcycle and that house and that retirement and these finances and a better one of these, and a health, uh, without health concern, life, and on and on it can go. You, Pastor Seth, what's the problem? Christ, I've eaten of the bread of life, and now I'm full of hunger. I'm full of covetousness. I'm being overwhelmed. Nothing I have is enough. And the verbiage there is, he that not just has come to me one time. Salvation is a one-time event. But being a disciple of Christ is to come to him every day, throughout the day, finding my satisfaction in him alone. Christ, I trust you that what you've brought into my life is enough. I trust you for my... I trust you for my children. I trust you for the health that you've allowed into my life or the lack of health that you've allowed into my life. 
Lord, thank you for the needs that you've brought into my life, into my family. Help, help us, Lord, not to worry and be anxious. Help me not to be angry with you and rebellious against you for what you've allowed into my life. But, Lord, you are God, Christ. You who live within me by your Spirit, you are God. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to love you. And I'm not going to love this world. That's not where they were. Sometimes that's not where I'm at either. It's never enough, the things of this world. It's never enough. There's nobody who can satisfy you outside of Jesus Christ. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy your flesh or my flesh outside of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that about your flesh? There is nothing that can satisfy it. Nothing that can satisfy your soul, the hunger in your soul outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my question to you and me is, do you believe in him? Do you believe in him? Are you trusting him? He is enough. He is enough. And and our children need to see this in our lives, that mom and dad, you know what? They are believers in Christ. When the house isn't what it ought to be, when the income changes, my parents are believers in Christ. Our fellow believers, we need to see that in one another. Verse 36, he goes on, he says, But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. You've seen me. See, seeing is not equal with believing. You've seen me. Jesus says, you've seen me as God but you don't see me as God. Jesus identifies himself as the very bread of life, but not only that, he identifies himself as the I am. The people have been talking about Moses and the manna, you remember. And so Jesus refers all the way back to when Moses was 80 years old and when God had called him to lead his people out of the bondage of Egypt. And you remember in the wilderness when God called Moses and Moses was 80 years of old of age, he came to that burning bush that bush with, that burned with fire but was not consumed. And Moses heard a voice from out of the bush tell him, uh, uh, take off your shoes for the ground whereon you stand is holy ground. You might remember how Moses cried out. He, he calls out to the bush and he says, uh, what is your name? And the name of God was given to him, I am. I wonder if Moses thought, and? I am, yeah, what? Is that it? I am. And Jesus was telling these people that God, who had provided them with manna from heaven in the past to meet their physical necessities, that Jesus Christ was the manna of the present. He was the bread of life. And Jesus took the name of God, I am, and he linked it with the perfect sustenance for human life. Jesus was saying that he is everything that we need. The words, cometh, believeth, has the idea of keep coming. Matthew 11 and verse 28 says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is that what you're experiencing in your life? Or are you overwhelmed? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Is your soul satisfied? Do you find yourself always desiring what you don't have? Come to him, believe upon him. Verse 37, as we close out, says, Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me 
And God knows all who will be saved. Jesus says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Verse 38, for I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, and of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. End of verse 39 is where I'm at. The resurrection is so very, very important. Verse 40, and this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. What a promise. The resurrection is the ultimate issue of eternal life. Resurrection. You see, the quest of the crowd and the mission of Christ were different. The crowd wanted life. Jesus wanted them to have life. The contrast was in the interpretation of what life was and what life is. Life, the crowd said, was when they were full, physically satisfied, stimulated. Their bellies were full. They had exactly what they wanted in their lives. And you fill in the blank for you. Christ said, that's not life. Having a bunch of stuff. Having perfect health isn't life. Living a certain number of years isn't necessarily life. No. You remember the prodigal son? He left his father because he wanted to live. He wanted friends. He wanted to be popular. He wanted his life his way. And in seeking to live his life his way, he lost his life. And to live, what did he do? He came home to the Father. And the Father gave him everything that he had wanted when he was looking in the wrong places. Some of us are looking for peace and joy and contentment, satisfaction, fulfillment. And we're looking at all that the world has to offer. And I want you to know, in the world, you will not find any of those things. You will not find any of those things. But in Christ, the bread of life, you will find all of those things. You know him. You have received him. Keep believing in him, and you will be satisfied. I want you to take your hymnals. I want you to stand to your feet with me here this, this morning. And I want us to close with a hymn. Hymn number 485, What Will You Do With Jesus? And as you sing this hymn, some of us here this morning just need to cry out to the Lord in repentance and say, God, would you please forgive me? Because I've been so dissatisfied with you. I've been looking elsewhere. I've been consumed with the external, the temporal, the material. And Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to me again as the lover of my soul and the savior of my soul, the bread of life. Help me to be satisfied with you. Is he enough for you? Is he enough? Let's sing together.